really, really great to be here again. It's been a while. I don't remember exactly when we were here last, but uh, I, I, I'm glad to be here. Good to see my brother, Chris. I love him. Um, I'm sure you all do. Thankful for him. And uh, uh, I asked him uh, how long I could talk today, and he said, uh, well, you can talk as long as you want. People will leave about 12, but you can talk as long as you want. So uh, you never know, you know, what's going to happen. A little boy asked his dad when he saw a preacher take off his watch, lay it down. He said, Daddy, what does that mean? And the daddy said, that means absolutely nothing. (laughs) So let's turn to John chapter 1. I'm going to be here next Sunday as well, and I want to do a two-part study and look based on the uh, text in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. The Word became flesh. Earlier here, of course, in John 1, as most of you know, we have these very famous words about the beginning of the, in the beginning was the word, the Logos, and we, and we read through the text regarding the, uh, this individual called the word, and then we get to verse 14, and we find out that, of course, it is the one who became flesh, so we're talking, obviously, about Jesus. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, and here's my phrase I want to emphasize the next two Sundays, today and next week, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace after grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. He is full of grace and truth. What an amazing phrase. Wouldn't you like to be known as a person who is full of grace and truth? I can't imagine a better way to be known. When I think about an epitaph on my tombstone, what a great epitaph that would be, right? Full of grace and truth. I've been chairman of the faculty at Bryan College the last couple of years, and I've made this our, kind of our motto for the last couple of years, emphasizing, focusing on, encouraging people, challenging our teachers, our faculty to be full of grace and truth. We're in a in a situation teaching in a Christian environment that we forget sometimes, given, you know, teaching is hard sometimes. Uh, Teaching is not always fun, right? There are are tasks that go along with teaching that uh, can become drudgery at times and so forth. But we need to remember, I've always challenged them, I challenge myself to remember that the impact that we can have the opportunity of ministry and teaching that we can have uh, is multi-generational. 
It's not just that we have students that are in front of us today, but they have, they're going to have children and grandchildren and families. We can minister to and affect generations. And so can you. If you're a parent, grandparent, you can affect generations. Don't ever forget that. So I want to be, and I hope you want to be, someone who is full of grace and truth. Now today I want to focus on the first part of that. Notice grace comes first. And it doesn't say grace or truth. It says grace and truth. Today we want to focus on the first part. Grace. Being full of grace. Grace without truth can become mere mushy sentimentality and not be very helpful. Truth without grace can become cold, uncompassionate dogmatism. So Jesus is full of both of those things. He is full of grace and truth. And I want to challenge us to seek to be full of grace and truth. All through Scripture, grace is one of the central attributes of God and is emphasized. There is a strange text, some of you know it, in Exodus chapter 33, where Moses uh, wants to, is put behind a rock and God passes, the glory of God passes by. Remember that? It's a really strange text. Moses saw something, okay? <laughs> I don't know what he saw. He saw something, right? But in, in that experience, in chapter 34, verse 6, we read this. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness or loyal love and truth. That's the Old Testament. God is describing himself compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loyal love and truth. That's our God. Same God saying that to the children of Israel, to Moses, is our God today. He's full of grace. Now, grace brings a lot of things. Okay. I don't want to focus first on the fact that from grace comes life. Life. God, our gracious God, is the source of life. Now, in Genesis, we read about the creation, and we read about God creating all things. And on the sixth day, he creates special, unique beings, namely us, right? He creates us, and he creates us with unique abilities and capacities, different from everything else that he created. And I've thought a lot about why did he create us, and why did he create us the way he did? And in, in uh, birth, uh, David Needham's book, Birthright, which I really recommend, he says the following. He says, man was created to receive and to reflect the life of God. Man was created in a unique way, in the image of God, to receive and to reflect the life of God. To experience... God's kind of life. 
Is that not incredible? He created us uniquely in His image so that we can be like Him. So that we can have the kind of life that God has. Now, if that's the case, and I believe that, that it is, that gives a lot of added depth to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Remember, God told Adam and Eve that if you eat from this certain tree of this certain fruit, he made it as simple as possible. Have you ever noticed that? Very, very uncomplicated. Adam could not say to God, you know, I didn't understand what you were saying. I didn't get it, right? No, yes, you did, right? Very simple. He said, eat that fruit and what's going to happen? You will die. Well, he did, right? He ate the fruit and he died. And so has everybody else since then. Death involves separation, doesn't it? If Laura Lee, my wife, passed away right now, at this very moment, her corpse would be sitting there. She'd be gone. There's separation that takes place in death. Think of that, then, in terms of what God told Adam would happen if they ate of that fruit. He said, you will die. What does that mean? That means you will become separated from the life that you were created for. And Paul even refers to that phrase in Ephesians 4.17. He even uses that phrase for unbelievers. He says they're separated from the life of God. You realize how profound that is? Sinning on the part of Adam and, and all of us is a whole lot more than just doing bad things. Not doing what you're supposed to do, doing what you're not supposed to do. We tend to think of it like that. It's far more profound than that. Sin separated us, made us incapable of having and enjoying and experience and reflecting the very life that we were created for which is God's kind of life. That means that we're in deep trouble. Right? We're dead. Now in Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us That while we were yet sinners, we were helpless, right? Helpless. Interesting word, isn't it, in Romans 5? How helpless is helpless? Were we really helpless? Were we really completely, totally helpless? Or were were we only partly helpless? I like uh, the Princess Bride, the Miracle Max scene. Where he says, no, he's only mostly dead. He's not all dead. If you were all dead, all you can do is go through the pockets and look for loose change. But he is, some of you know that, that's good. He is all dead. 
I am all dead. I was. Separated from the life of God. I was dead. Now what can a dead man do? Not a lot, right? Not a lot. So if I'm ever going to have a relationship with God, if any of us could ever have a relationship with God, could we have initiated it? No, because we were dead. The only way that you and I could ever have a relationship with the living God and and understand again and experience again the kind of life that He wanted us to have when He created us is that He had to do something to bring that about. He had to initiate it. Ephesians chapter 2. Some very familiar verses, verses 4 to 6. Let me read these. But God, being rich in mercy, mercy, that's what we needed. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God being rich in mercy, he made us alive by his grace. Grace brings life. God, rich in mercy, gave us life even while we were dead. Becoming a Christian is profound. If you want to join the Rotary Club, good organization, my daughter belongs to the Rotary Club. If you want to go to join the Rotary Club, what do you do? Well, you talk to a Rotarian, right? You go to a meeting. You say, what, what does the Rotary Club do? What's your mission? You know, what, do you, what, do you, what is your purpose? What's your statement of purpose? Right. You find out what, it do, what they do and what it is and so forth. And after a while, if you say, you know, I like this. I like what you all do. I like, yeah, I like your purpose. This is good. I think I might like to be a part of this. And so then they'll ask you, if, well, okay, if, will you promise to do this and this? Will you come to the meetings? Will you pay your dues? Will you, you know, do what we do? And if you say yes, then, oh, well, welcome. You're a Rotarian. Is that how we become believers? Come to church one time. You say, what do you all do here? Well, we, you know, we sing and we talk and we read the Bible and we do some stuff. And, and you say, well, you know, I kind of like that. Sounds interesting. I think I might want to be a part of that. Can I join up? And you say, well, you come to the meetings and pay your dues and, and do what, you, you know, what we do. And, and, and then you become a member. Is that, is that how it happens? Is that what happens? Sometimes we act like that's the case, though, don't we? We know that's not the case, right? We know that we were dead. And the only thing dead people need is life. You see how profound the gospel is. God took dead people, separated from him, separated from his life, 
and he gave them life. Life now and life forever, from which nothing can ever separate us. That's worth an amen, isn't it? Grace brings life. But that's not all. Grace is the power for life. Grace is the power for living righteously, living holy, godly lives. This is grace through and through, you see. This whole relationship begins with grace, and it's all grace all the way through, and it'll be grace forever. You and I are going to be dependent on the grace of God forever. Not just for now, but forever. God's got a big plan in mind. God's got a big program in mind. He's not just thinking about this year in your life. He's not just thinking about next week, next year. He's thinking about forever. And his plans for us that he has a million years from now. What are you going to be doing? I don't know. But he does. He has a plan for you that he's working out, getting you ready for now. And that's God's grace as well. Listen to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, not only, though, does he bring salvation and life, but now he says, the grace of God has appeared, instructing us, instructing us, notice, teaching us to what? To deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. God has not just brought us life, he's brought us everything pertaining to our lives now. And His grace is what gives us strength and ability to live sensibly, righteously, and godly every single day. We forget that, I think. When I look at my brother Chris, I realize God's grace is amazing. Right? And he knows that better than anyone. Right? And he knows how he's being sustained at every instant right now by nothing more, probably, than God's grace for as long as God wants him here. And we thank him for that. But you know what? So are you. So are you. So am I. My life is just as dependent on God's grace for every single breath as Chris's is. But when we're healthy and things are going fine and we're doing okay, you know, we, we don't, we forget that, don't we? But we need to be reminded of that. And I'm here today to remind you of that, that it's God's grace and it's only God's grace that you're even alive at this moment that you're sitting there together in this fellowship. Only God's grace. He gives us grace to live righteously, sensually, and godly. Grace is what produces righteousness in us. It's God's grace in us and through us and the Holy Spirit in us who produces genuine goodness, God's goodness. Genuine love, God's love. 
God's life. Grace is within us by God's life in us. We're under grace now, Romans 6.14 says. We're not under law. We're under grace. Let me just address that for a minute. We're under grace, not under law. What does that mean? Well, if we have a couple hours here, I'll, I'll get into that. But let me just say a few things. Let me just say a few things. A life lived under law is a life based on performance. Based on performance. How well am I doing? Legalism, being under law in a legalistic sense. Legalism is a mentality. You need to understand that. Legalism is not the mere presence of laws and rules. The Bible has all kinds of laws and commands in it doesn't make the Bible legalistic. It's not the mere presence of those things. It's an attitude. It's a mentality about the purpose of those things. Why we have them, why we should obey them, and what comes as a result of that. That's where legalism begins to kick in. So a legalism is a performance-based mentality in your Christian life, not a grace-based mentality. And it's usually often able to be expressed best in a hypothetical manner. I was listening on the radio one day. I heard a famous preacher who shall remain unnamed, but he said the following. This is verbatim. He said, if you're not reading your Bible through from cover to cover at least once a year, you're missing the mark. Let me say that again. If you're not reading your Bible through from cover to cover at least once a year, you're missing the mark. Now, if you have some understanding of what's wrong with that, you have some understanding of what legalism is. Based on your performance depends, my relationship with God on a daily basis depends on how well I'm doing or how much I'm doing. That's legalism. If I have a good quiet time every day, I'll, do, I'll, I'll, I'll have more sales this week. I'll do good on the test. Of course, if I don't, the negative also works, right? If I don't have a good quiet time this morning, there is no way God's going to help me to do well on the test. Do we not easily fall into that way of thinking Yes, we do. That's not grace thinking. The multiplication of laws is not a sign of spiritual health. Well, I wish we had a couple hours talking about that. The multiplication of laws is not a sign of spiritual health. Tacitus, Roman historian of the first century, not a Christian at all, in his annals, he says, the more corrupt the republic, the more laws. (laughs) 
We have way too many laws in our country. The IRS code being a prime example. Right? Nobody understands that. Have you ever tried to get help from somebody at the IRS? They don't know either. The multiplication of laws is not an indication of spiritual health. You know, that's just as true in your life as it is in the country. Apostle Paul in Romans 13, Jesus says in Matthew 22, after defining the greatest commandments, he says, love God and love your neighbor. And then he says, love is the fulfillment of the law. If I have God's love in my heart and my life, if God's grace is empowering me to live godly and sensibly and graciously and loving Him in my life. I don't need all those rules. I'm living out of grace. I'm living out of God's life in me. One believer said, quote, there are many things I used to do, but don't do anymore. Not because it's against the rules but because it's against my heart. See, we're new creations, right? Paul says if you're in Christ, the man's in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. Jim Sennett says, while we used to ask, what can we get away with? God is used to asking, what are you capable of? God is an incurable optimist. I really like that phrase. God is an incurable optimist. Why? Because he knows what you can be. And he knows what he wants to make you into by his grace. This grace, however, was very costly. For us to be able to experience God's grace, to know him, to have his life in us, his grace working in us. Cost him everything. This is not cheap grace we're talking about here. There are some who argue that the atonement, the work of Christ on the cross, was just showing God's love for us. Because he is loving, right? He's merciful, loves everyone. And the cross was just a way for him to show us, gives an example of his love for us. And because he loves us so much, and he's so gracious, that he'll just forgive you, because he's a loving, forgiving God. So if you just say, I'm sorry, he'll forgive you over and over and over and over and over, because he just loves you. He loves everybody. Does the fact that God is gracious mean that he can overlook sin, however? We would say, no, of course not. Why not? Because he wouldn't be righteous if he did that. He'd be really loving, but he wouldn't be righteous. There's a very, very important text about the cross in Romans chapter 3. If you want to look there quickly, but let me just read Romans 3, 25 and 26. Talking about the cross of Christ. Paul says, this, the cross, was to prove, prove, 
or demonstrate His righteousness. For the proof, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He might be righteous. And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wow, what a great text. The cross proves the righteousness of God because the penalty of sin had to be paid for. That could not be left, it could not be undone. It had to happen if God were to be a righteous God. Now think about Think about uh, courtroom, Oak Ridge, got a judge. Uh, people come in, the criminals are accused of things. Judge says, uh, did you do this? And they say, yeah, 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 judge, I did. Are you sorry for it? Oh, yeah, I'm really sorry. Will you promise not to do it again? Oh, absolutely. Of course. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, great. See ya. You're free to go. Next guy comes in. Same thing. Did you do this? Yeah, I did. Are you sorry? Yeah, I'm really sorry. You promise not to do it again? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Okay. See ya. Free to go. And he kept doing this every day, day after day after day after day. We'd probably get rid of that judge, right? But why? He's a really nice guy. He's he's compassionate. He's generous. He loves people. Loves people. But we would say, but he's not righteous. He's supposed to be righteous. It's important to care about people, yes, but he's here to make sure the law is upheld. He's supposed to be righteous. To do that is to be unrighteous. God cannot simply let people into his heaven because he's a nice God. He is. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's loving more so than we can even imagine. But he can't just let people in. Why not? Because he wouldn't be righteous. But he is righteous. How do we know that? How do we know for all time and eternity that God is righteous? Paul says, look at the what? Cross. The cross proves, demonstrates the righteousness of God for all time. That had to happen so that God could be righteous and prove he's righteous. But it only had to happen once, right? So numerous places in in Romans, but also in Hebrews, of course, we have this phrase, once for all, right? Once for all, once for all, once for all, once for all. God's righteousness is proven. His, 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 His work was finished at the cross when he said, it is finished. He meant that. It was done Everything that had to be happened so that you and I could be righteous. So that we could experience his life again by grace and through faith. Was accomplished. 
So now, Paul says, he's proven that he's just, that he's righteous. But then notice that next phrase. It also proves that now he can be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's you and me. So now God, when he forgives us, he forgives us righteously. He doesn't forgive us just because he's a nice God. And just because he loves you. He forgives you righteously. He forgives you because the penalty of your sin has actually been paid for. And now you do not stand in sin any longer. And you do not stand in the wrath and under the wrath of God anymore. You stand now in God's life and God's grace. And you will forever. And that's how he wants you to live. Live in grace. But truth matters too, doesn't it? What I've talked about today is grace built and based on truth. Next week we're going to focus on that aspect of this truth. We live in a time where truth, capital T truth now, what Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth, capital T truth is being attacked, as many of you know. A lot of people don't even think it exists. Recent Barner report, 66% of Americans say there is no such thing as absolute truth. 72% between 18 and 25 don't believe in absolutes. 53% of those who call themselves evangelical Christians don't believe in absolute truth. We live in a difficult time where truth is under attack. So we want to be people full of grace, but we also want to be people full of truth. But we want to speak our truth graciously. <laughs> Which is sometimes hard, isn't it? Because we get, we get upset. Somebody says something, you know, it's like... Again, how do you keep from doing that? By God's grace. <laughs> God help me. Give me grace to speak the way I should speak. Okay. So we want to be people full of grace and truth. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this truth. Father, we want to be like Jesus. We know, as your word says, he was full of grace and truth. Father, we want to be people like that. And we know that we can't be people like that apart from your grace and your life in us and your Holy Spirit in us to help us, even today, as we go through the rest of today, Father. Give us the grace to be people like you are. Help us to look to you, depend upon you for every breath and realize that we're actually doing that and know that you're in our lives and we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Commit our lives, again, this fellowship and all that goes on today, we commit back to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.